KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. There have been several reports out of South Korea that about 118 people who have been declared cured of COVID-19 had tested positive again. This, of course, raises a bunch of questions, one of which is, can you become infected more than once? I called Dr. Helen Koenig. She's an associate professor of clinical medicine and an infectious disease expert at Penn Medicine. But because COVID developments come at us faster than a speeding bullet these days, we ended up talking about that. Can you get reinfected? We talked about immunity as well as a number of other things. When I was putting together, I think about the questions I wanted to ask you, I ended up finding myself kind of, there's so many different directions to go in. But I'd like to start out with masks because we are being now ordered to wear masks and cloth face coverings in public. And it's made some people angry. I've read some tweets about people saying their their personal rights are being violated and questioning whether these masks really protect us. So can I get your opinion? Do masks work? Do they protect us? That's a great question. And this is a controversial topic and we're we're all learning together but I think we're starting to see more and more data come out that masks do serve a very important role. There was a study that we reviewed actually at the division yesterday that essentially looked at surgical masks. So you know like the they're not they're not going to be the cloth homemade sort of masks that that some people are going to be wearing. But in terms of the many folks wearing surgical masks, so not N95, but surgical plain old surgical masks showing that the benefit of, of those masks, which probably extends to some degree to homemade and cloth um, masks, is to protect other people from you. They really don't do anything to protect you from other people. So if I'm walking down the street wearing a cloth mask or a surgical mask, I'm probably not protected by my mask. However, I'm protected by all the other people I see walking down the street who are wearing their masks. It's a sort of a community protection measure that's sort of larger than the individual individual protection. Based on the data that that we that that, have, that were just published earlier this week, looking at surgical masks, there is a significant decrease in the amount of virus that enters the air, COVID specific, but also other viruses. Influenza was also looked at when people are wearing surgical masks. So again, if I'm wearing a mask, and then there's a there's a been a um, scientific sort of demonstration that there is significantly less viral particles that I am then um, shedding into the air to potentially infect other other folks. And I think that's a really important point because the comments I've read from people who say that this is violating their personal right, they think that they're they're only putting themselves at risk. I think there's a lack of understanding of what you just said, that it's not it's not you you're putting at risk if you don't wear a mask. You're putting other people at risk by not wearing one. That's exactly right. And, you know, we're all in this together. So everything I do affects you and everything you do affects me in 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 very big ways. And so, again, as you walk down the street, all the other people wearing masks, they're doing that for me. And I'm wearing a mask for all of those people. 
Did you look at other types of masks or even cloth coverings? Because they're telling people if not everybody can get their hands on a mask these days. So, you know, people are making homemade ones with cloth or wearing bandanas. Are they effective? There's not been a study looking at that. However, anything, you know, the the whole coffin or sneeze into your arm, you know, even that, (laughs) we know there's some data for older data, but we know there's some data. And really, so anything that that you can do to divert some of the, the force of these sneezes and coughs, you know, of sort of going out separate from you and then landing on a chair or a table or a street or a bike or a surface or um, anything else, a keyboard, anything else that anybody else might touch, it's going to make a difference. That's not been shown scientifically, but um, I think we have enough sort of older data that's related to suggest that, that these things are going to make a difference across the population in general. How much of a difference is difficult to say. Yeah, don't sneeze on my box of cereal, please. (laughs) (laughs) I promise I won't. Yeah, it's disgusting when you look at the spread. There have been some pretty graphic demonstrations about when you sneeze or cough, just how Mm -hmm. far your germs go. Yeah, and, and I think people are finally really realizing how much we touch our faces. And I'm, and I'm not sure any of us ever fully appreciated this before. You know, we've had a hospital, we've had some providers acquire COVID who are wearing appropriate PPE in, you know, rooms with COVID patients where the sole means of transmission was essentially somebody touching with a, with a gloved hand, you know, that had sort of been in a patient room, then touching their eyes, essentially, not even realizing it, but someone else pointing out to them. Um, and that, you know, that was enough to cause a transmission, even in the setting of full PPE. So that doesn't tell you that PPE doesn't work. PPE does work. You still can't touch your face. You can't sabotage the PPE. So all of those things, I think, um, work together when we think about preventing this and wearing cloth masks and coughing and sneezing into you know, elbows, all those, all anything that we can do to reduce the number of sort of viral particles that are circulating outside of us and then th- being cognizant of then as we touch surfaces, then touching our own face to, to sort of complete that transmission cycle. Those are the key things here that we're going to be thinking about for a long, long time. This is not going to go away. And even though the conversations around sort of starting to reopen different settings within the community, within the healthcare system, within the government, within schools. Those conversations are really important to start because we have to do that right. And if we reopen, there has to be a lot of thoughtfulness about how to reopen. Reopen doesn't mean just go back to normal. Reopening is going to look different than we looked before. And even though we might start congregating and we might start resuming things, there, there, it may look different physically. There may masks may be with us for for a while. Testing may be with us for a while and help influence some of our decisions about when and how to go back to work um, or to school. And you know, reopening is is not just turning turning off the switch that we turned that we turned on. And that was my next line of questioning, which was exactly that, because of course the next big piece of news is that the president has um, released this phase in plan, but he's allowing it. He's allowing governors to make the decision as to when they do this. So what is your opinion on when we can start easing up on social distancing and kind of phasing in this plan? Where, where, what, at what point would you be satisfied that we've, I guess, flattened the curve enough or whatever that we can start to do that? That's impossible to answer. I'm sure you know it. Everything has been 
every day is a, a little bit of a surprise. You don't know what you're going to see that day and what's going to change that day. At Penn, we're still, the number of cases is uh, still increasing every day. You know, at the Hospital View Penn, we have 92 or 93 cases today, up from 86 yesterday, up from 84 the day before, up from 82 the day before that. Those are, those are don't quote me exactly, but those, that's the trend, up by two or three or four every day in terms of total number of patients. So we haven't started decreasing yet. And this is just, these are just Philadelphia data, but all over the country, um, there are very few places that are actually starting to see their numbers. Flattening of the curve doesn't mean, you know, that things are going back down. It just means they're stopping going up. And I think it's important not to reopen anything until you started to see some downward movement rather than just plateauing what that date is and, and what's the slope of that line and when to make those decisions, you know, I think those are decisions where we're all struggling with. We, we were on a call about that this morning. There are calls all over the health system trying to figure that out. Of course, none of us have ever done this before. So it's impossible. It's impossible to guess. I was just on a phone call. I've already been on three phone calls this morning, and as I'm sure many of us have. But one of them was with our, our principal of my kid's school, and she was trying to guess when we would open school again to do some summer programming to catch the kids up. And she guessed maybe mid-July, but I think that's a blind guess. Um, and we're all sort of shooting in the dark here. So I don't think I, it's hard to answer that question. And it's interesting coming from you because you're an expert in this. And but like you're saying, we don't, this is a, this is brand new. This is brand new. We've never been here before. But I think starting that conversation is important because I don't, I, I think it, Having people have some sort of structure to reopening is critical. And then to sort of, you don't want to start the conversation the day before you're going to reopen. You want to sort of figure out what are the steps involved because it's not a simple, um, it's not a simple one-step process. And I, this is more psychological than infectious, but but yet there is an infection of kind of the anxiety and this is getting old and people mm -hmm. are getting tired. And it does, I mean, I think even just having the conversation about what it looks like might be helpful to give people hope that this will end someday. We're not going to be like this forever and ever and ever. I totally agree. I think one of the interesting things that's happened, there are some places where we've seen these very high peaks and scary curves, New York, of course, is a big, a big one. Um, and then in other places like Philadelphia, we haven't seen these high peaks. They're sort of these medium-sized, you know, peaks. The concern is that we've been very successful, which is great, in flattening the curve by implementing universal masking and by, um, you know, so quarantining early and all the things you've heard. Um, and by doing that, limiting the number of people coming into the hospital on any given day and therefore allowing us to have capacity to care for those people, which minimizes deaths, which is all what you want. But the downside of that, which is a good downside, but it's something we're going to have to work through, is that this is going to last a long time, <laughs> a lot longer. When you flatten the curve, the virus is still going to find people that have not been infected. It's going to find people that are not immune. And when the curves get flattened, that means that curve is going to go for a lot longer than when the curve goes straight up and straight down. So you are absolutely right. This is, this is going to be with us for months, 
if not year or two years or more, you know, until we sort of have an effective vaccine. To, to some degree, COVID is, is not going away. Um, but um, I, I hear you and I totally agree with you. There's a lot of fatigue around, um, you know, we miss each other. <laughs> we miss yeah. each other. That's yeah. the plain and simple. We miss each other. And, um, and then I think people do start to get a little bit um, less rigorous about washing their hands every time they touch a door handle. And maybe, you know what, I've gone to the supermarket 25 times and been really crazy about, you know, wearing a mask and not touching anything. And I've been fine. So, you know, maybe this time I can do, I can loosen up a little bit. And those things, I think, to some degree are, are natural and in many cases are, are okay. But I think the longer we can sort of keep ourselves together as a community and not, and, and not succumb to that just yet, the, the, the better off we will be. Because what is the other, the flip side of that conversation is what is the danger of opening up too soon? Well, the danger of opening up too soon is that you have to close again, is that you you take a step forward and then you have to take a step back again, that you see another rise. You know, again, there, it's unclear how much immunity you get having if you've been exposed. We can talk about that. But certainly there is some immunity. It may be significant immunity. It's probably not complete immunity once you've been exposed and or infected. But a lot of us are still fresh meat. <laughs> and so if we reopen too quickly, because we've flattened the curves and been successful in that way, there's still a lot of us, most of us, who haven't been exposed or infected who, you know, are, are then vulnerable to, to that. Um, and the cycle will, will continue. Well, let's talk about that, because there have been a few reports uh, out of South Korea from the South Korea News Agency this week. And the gist of those reports is that some people who had been declared cured then tested positive for COVID-19 again. And I'm wondering if you have seen data out of South Korea, what you are seeing and what that what that means, because the, the articles I had read seem to imply that the people who have been cured had been cleared from the virus and that this was somehow some kind of a new infection. Right. Is that so? It's very difficult to tell because we have, for example, some healthcare workers who are positive three and four and sometimes more weeks by nasal swab after their initial diagnosis. But we do know that the virus can hang around in some people for longer, maybe up to eight weeks. Usually the sicker you are, the longer it, it can hang around versus maybe in most people it's gone 10, 14 days after you acquire the virus. And so these, these, the definitions are what get us here because let's say I get COVID today and I test positive and within a week and a half, I'm better. And then I get a bad cold two weeks later and someone tests me and I'm positive for COVID. Well, is that cold something totally different? Is that rhinovirus? Um, but my test is still positive from, from four weeks prior, which we know can happen. Or is that me recovering from COVID and getting COVID again? And it's really impossible to distinguish in many cases. Is that a, is that a recurrence of COVID? Or do I just still happen to have a positive test, but I have another one of the thousand other respiratory viral infections that one can get that can look a lot like COVID. And we're dealing with that every day in the hospital um, setting and healthcare workers who want to return to work and are still in her and, and uh, have similar sort of situations. 
you know, but we do know some data out of China that have not been peer reviewed, but are preliminary that that maybe up to a third of people who've been infected with COVID lab tests confirmed don't mount a great immune response to the virus. So either having have low levels of antibodies or some who have no antibody, no antibody response. And theoretically, although it's always difficult to say for sure, those people may be certainly susceptible to reinfection. So it, it may have to do with how robust is your immune response and uh, did you mount the right antibodies at the right levels. And that's a question that I think is really critical to answer that we're all trying to answer, you know, and, and even at Penn, we opened this just this week, a serologic study for healthcare workers where you can get essentially just blood tests to see for people who never had symptoms <laughs> to see, were you exposed? Do you have antibodies against COVID? Which is going to be fascinating because let's say I get tested today and I have antibodies against COVID. That means I was exposed and infected, but never had symptoms. And then Three months down the line, if I then get symptoms and I get tested and I have five COVID, well, there's a data point that tells you that, you know, she had already been exposed and she got reinfected. This is clearly a new infection, you know, and then the more you accrue data points like that, the more you start to understand this virus and the ability to be reinfected once, um, you know, once infected one time. So those are really, I think, the key questions right now that are going to help us dictate, honestly, what the next few years are going to look like. So the question, though, is it is it possible because there have been some stories where people seem to be getting better and then all of a sudden just drop off the cliff and get severely ill and in some cases even die. So could the virus go dormant or or somehow become undetected, and whereas you're not getting a reinfection, but you have the virus, and then maybe your immune system seemed to be getting a handle on it, and then somehow the virus takes over. Yes, that similar. It's something very much like what you just said happened. So the virus does not become dormant um, in the ways that we think of other viruses becoming dormant: the monovirus, herpes virus, things like that. What happens is is that you get infected. And then people, most people tend to have sort of mildish symptoms for a few days a week, maybe 10, 12, 14 days even. And then a certain subset of those patients have an incredibly robust in, immune inflammatory response. Um, the cytokine, cytokine release um, syndrome that we're all talking about, where essentially your immune system kind of blows up and your whole body becomes inflamed and you can have multi-organ involvement. It is very, uh, it, I would say, um, difficult, not impossible to sort of predict who's, who will have that response and who will not. You know, you, you know the data too. The people that seem to have that are people who have underlying diabetes, obesity, you know, because those are inflammatory conditions actually at baseline. And then, of course, people who, you know, the, the people with lung and heart disease, those folks just have are more tenuous to start. So that may be a little bit of a different mechanism. And we're also starting to do some studies now to sort of figure out, can we predict by somebody's antibody profile, by somebody's immunologic profile, by certain laboratory markers, who's going to go south, who's going to fall off that cliff a week, two weeks in, as you mentioned, and who, who is not. But is there anything with it, particularly with the uh, cytokine reaction, that's horrifying. Um, I've read stories about that. Is there anything you can do to head that off? 
we don't know. <laughs> we don't know the answer to that. And I, so I'm sorry, I keep saying the same thing, but I don't want to lie to you. So what we know is that the overwhelming majority of people don't have that re- response. Um, and we also know that there are some medicines that may be effective in, in warding off that response. Some of the medicines that are studying are hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir um, in that situation. So if you start these medications, can you ward off that response in somebody who is looking like they may start to head in that direction? Certainly these meds are not necessary for everybody because you'd be treating thousands of people to prevent, you know, a small number of folks from having this cytokine response. But how do you accurately predict who might be at risk and who might, who might benefit from earlier treatment? Um, and, and the second corollary question is, do these medicines even ward off that kind of cytokine response syndrome. We we have, um, hopefully there will be data released by the NIH on remdesivir, the intravenous medication, in the next one to two weeks. So I think that will really help us determine the role of remdesivir in doing just what you said. Um, and then hydroxychloroquine is the other one that, again, we're sort of using, but uh, it, it's still awaiting clinical trials data that will tell us if, if what we're doing is really working. If you take out pre-existing conditions like we just mentioned, do you have any idea, any better idea of why some people get mild symptoms and some people die? There was a heartbreaking story earlier this week from this young man from New York City who was a, a, um, a trainer. He was in peak health. He was in great shape and he died. And so do we have any idea why? I would say, just like in medicine in general, we have general predictive rules that work much of the time, but not all of the time. So we know that in some cases we can predict who's, who's more likely to 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 die. But we've been we've we've been very humbled by this virus, and we here here as well have had patients just like the one you've mentioned, young healthy people, who for all the world we would have predicted would do well, uh, and they crash. Uh, those people are very much in the minority. Most young and healthy people do very well. But when we see one of these, it, it reminds us that there's a lot we don't know about the virus and we can't predict everything. So let's go back and talk about immunity. So you were you were saying how, you know, we're really not sure if you have immunity or how much immunity you have, or it could be different in different people. So can you talk then about this idea of herd immunity? Because a lot of people are saying, oh, once we have herd immunity, everything will be so much better. Is that true? And what is it? Herd immunity is a concept that we know well when we think about vaccines. So the idea is, is that if you have infected, um, so let's think of a measles, a rapidly, uh, a very infectious, highly contagious, rapidly moving virus and you drop measles into a population of people who haven't been vaccinated, it's going to spread through that population like wildfire. Let's say there are 100 people in that population. They're all going to get it, um, or most most of them will get it uh, at some point. If you vaccinate 100% of them, of course, zero of, that, of those 100 will get, will get measles. But the concept of herd immunity gets to the fact that you don't actually have to vaccinate 100% of those people. Every every virus has a different level of herd immunity required to prevent the population. But the idea is if you if you vaccinate, let's say, 
90% or 85% of those 100 people and you drop measles in, that measles will sort of die out before it gets from one non-immune person to find another of the rare non-immune people in that population. And so it won't get very far and it will never sort of, it'll cause little infections here and there that we'll hear about in the news, um, but it won't become, you know, pandemic. It won't spread like wildfire. So herd immunity is really a concept that says if enough people have been exposed, then even if everybody haven't, hasn't been exposed or vaccinated, then the community at large will be largely protected from the virus sort of, again, ripping through us. There will still be little pockets here and there. For some viruses, being, again, infected is not going to cause enough of a robust immune response to then protect you afterwards. Whereas vaccines typically have higher levels of, you know, antigens um, that are designed to give you a, a strong enough antibody response that you will achieve protection. So herd immunity with this is, is a concept that'll be much, <laughs> we'll be much more comfortable with when we actually have a vaccine. But prior to that, again, hoping that as enough, as enough people are exposed, and hopefully a lot of people exposed are never get symptomatic, don't have symptoms, but will retain some level of protection, that even though the virus will, could still find people here and there who haven't been exposed, that it will just be, it'll be little pockets here and there, and it won't be sort of um, explosive. What's that level of herd immunity required for COVID? Is it 85%? Is it 90%? Is it, is it 95%? Is it 60%? Is it 50%? We have no idea. Um, what, what we do know is that the, you know, the more people that have been exposed, the less the virus will sort of move through us. And ultimately, that herd immunity concept is only going to be achieved in a, in a scalable way by a vaccine. So we have a ways to go before we achieve any kind of herd immunity. Correct. Yeah. Herd immunity, by, by definition, means that a majority of a population is immune, usually from a vaccine. We're not, it's still a minority of us that have actually been infected with this virus. Well, but that's interesting because I think a lot of people, when I hear people talking about herd immunity, I think there's kind of a misunderstanding and that people think, well, if enough people just get infected, because I've heard people say, well, we should all just open up and everybody, you know, expose everybody. So we have some kind of herd immunity. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, (laughs) that was like a disaster in the making right there. Yeah, I'm not not sure that's the right way to think about it. I agree with you. I think you know, if you if you open everybody up again, you're just going to risk the same thing that we're all risk worried about already. Is then exposing people who then have that, who then can get very sick. So the idea is you want you want to keep things under wraps until you have a vaccine where you can then widespread vaccinate all the people, particularly the ones at highest risk of getting sick, then achieve herd immunity and then truly sort of open open up again. Obviously, we're not going to wait for another year to start achieving some sort of normalcy again culturally. But I don't think we're going to be fully back to normal, back to normal until we have a vaccine. So you're talking about, I mean, the vaccine, like you said, maybe a year out. That's not unusual for a vaccine. So you're saying we are probably going to have to practice some kind of protective measures, take some personal protective measures to stay safe until we have a vaccine? I think so. I mean, I I don't know how the months ahead will look, but that, that is what I'm guessing. Better I'll start sewing masks because we're going to run out. (laughs) Um, Do you have time for just one more question? Sure. Um, One more would be fine, yeah. Okay, plasma therapy. How does that work and are you seeing promise with that? 
we have not started that yet at Penn, although we're going to have a protocol in place next week to do so. But the data that we've seen out of some other institutions that have started this are, are very promising. The important question is, what's the time, uh, what's the time to, to do it? Um, and it's probably earlier in infection rather than later. Once this massive cytokine response sort of inflammatory process has taken off, there may, there may be um, less good that can come from this. The idea is, is that first the virus comes and the virus makes you sick, but then the virus may leave, but it's triggered this inflammatory response and then that takes over. And so if you infuse convalescent plasma at that point, well, there's no more virus around. The virus has done its job and left and the convalescent plasma probably won't help as much with the cytokine response. So you have to infuse early, earlier to fight the virus before the virus can trigger this inflammatory response. That's our best understanding uh, of this, although, you know, the reason we're going to do the trial next week and, and other folks is to, to try and answer these really important questions. Thank you, doctor, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for doing this. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.